Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. for joining us for another episode of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. This year's ITE Virtual Spring Conference showcased the importance of planners and engineers working collaboratively. Steve Buckley, Vice President of Planning and Advisory Services for Kimley Horn, took part in the keynote conversation along with Arizona DOT Director Jennifer Toth. While Steve's initial education was in engineering, he later received his master's in transportation and city planning, and his career has involved both disciplines. Steve is our guest on this episode of the ITE Talks Transportation podcast. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on ITE Talks Transportation. Thank you for having me. Earlier this month, you and Jennifer Toth, the director of Arizona DOT, had the keynote conversation at the March ITE Virtual Spring Conference, and that was entitled Great Communities at the intersection of planning and engineering. Now, you probably were one of the most ideal persons to uh, help lead that conversation because you started out as an engineer and then you've evolved into a planner and now your career embraces both. What are some of the key milestones that you've had along that path? I think early in my career, again, when you know, back when I was young and we're back in the 80s now, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I traveled around a lot and I just got to see a lot of the, the infrastructure that sort of me getting around the country. We used to do a lot of car trips as a family and got to see the bridges and the roads and the airports that sort of permitted me to kind of move around our country. So that's what really got me excited in terms of getting into the civil engineering transportation space. So I went through a college career in that and got my bachelor's degree. But early in my career, um, I was lucky enough to work on a project that was down in Maryland. It was Maryland Route 100. And at the time, we were sort of putting a brand new six-lane highway through what back in the day was sort of horsey country. You know, sort of as I got into the process, I sort of said, well, who, who decided this went here? And, and they said the planners. And at that time, I'd never heard of the professional planning. But so I started taking some courses around it. And um, ultimately, it sort of led me to a whole host of sort of interesting curiosities about who decides where things go, what are the priorities, how is funding allocated, which sort of just brought me into sort of getting a master's degree in planning. But at the same time, I saw that there's often a disconnect between what sort of the planners had developed and when it got sort of handed off to the engineers to design it, sort of some things were often lost in translation. So early on, I felt that there's sort of a real sort of need for someone who can sort of speak to both worlds and ensure sort of continuity going through and making sure that sort of some of the early ideals of what you were trying to achieve really got built into the final design. So that sort of led me to where I was learning a little bit more, I think, in the planning world about what is it that we need what are the goals we're trying to achieve? Um, I think sometimes in the engineering world, the process is so far along, you don't really get to influence things greatly. I think you're often tweaking things, but I really wanted to sort of move toward that front end of the question of what is it that we need and how can we serve our communities better? So that goes just simply beyond designing something. It's trying to think a little bit more holistically about economic development goals and community goals and safety goals and environmental goals. So that's sort of what brought me into the planning world. I'll say the good news is I, I see a lot of programs, uh, planning programs, sort of starting to span this a little bit more and bring a lot more of the technical rigor that engineering brings into sort of the planning practice as well, which I think is great for both planners and engineers. 
You talked about that early experience you had when you were working on Maryland 100. Obviously, it was at the beginning of your career, so you wouldn't necessarily have been consulted because you were just starting out. But do you find that there is more consultation that's going on now between planners and engineers early in the process? So when these routes are planned and these projects are planned, that is taken into consideration? Ever since sort of the EIS process, we've sort of been blending these a bit. But I do believe sort of at times it was sort of led by planners with some engineering involved and then sort of handed off to the engineers. I do sort of think that we're sort of seeing the professions blend together a little bit more and bring some engineering on earlier in the process to look for ways that we can do things better or less impactful. And I also think there's an important part here of making sure that the planners stay through the process so that, you know, on the back end, we don't find ourselves either value engineering things out or sort of letting good solutions or things like that fall by the wayside during the design process. So um, I think it's sort of the the span has sort of, of both has extended, which I think leads to, again, better solutions for everyone. You've had some experience during your career in terms of teaching at universities. Yep. Do you find that intersection of planning and engineering is being taught more in schools for both engineers and planners so that they each understand the other's profession and how they interact? A little bit more. I wouldn't say uh, we're fully there yet. A lot of the planning programs, uh, at least graduate school, are only two years. So there's only so much you can sort of cram into that. But we also are starting to see a number of undergraduate planning programs. Back when I was younger, the two that I could think of, I think Cornell had one and maybe Bryn Mawr, but we're starting to see undergraduate planning programs coming out, which gives folks a little bit more time and a little bit more sort of classes to be able to take in this space, which I think is a good thing. A lot of the planners back when I was young, they all often came out of undergraduate degree programs in geography. That was sort of how you got into planning. In in many of those cases, we're starting to see now people learning more about planning as a profession and getting a sort of a, a longer education in that program. Over the course of your career, have you seen examples where engineers and planners have worked cooperatively together? And could you give us some examples where you have seen that in place? Yeah, and I I think some of the, uh, at least my early experience in this too, on the consulting side, we used to do a lot of things called alternatives analysis, where you would have to sort of combine your your engineers and your planning team to sort of develop transit solutions. And that would often be, you'd be looking at a corridor and maybe doing five or six different types of alignments where you you had to work with engineers. So you had to know a little bit of the technical side. And then the planners would sort of do some of the more holistic analysis where we're looking at things outside of just transportation improvements. I'll bring it back home a little bit more, a little bit more on the ground level, um, an experience I had um, when I went into the public sector. I think the first really good exercise that we did as both planners and engineers in the city of Philadelphia, we put together what was our first complete streets guidebook. And at the time back in the day, there wasn't a lot of clear guidance from the city about what the city wanted in terms of roadway projects, nor even guidance for private development, which was um, increasing in the city of Philadelphia at the time. So in the absence of clear guidance, this led to a lot of back and forth during reviews, uh, a lot of conflicting comments during reviews, a lot of frustration from both the planners and engineers who felt that they were sort of um, competing for different needs within a project. Um, And then finally, a lot of delays and frustration for private developers. So the guidebook that we put together, by all means, it was not perfect, but it was a sort of solid version 1.0 which provided much clearer guidance on priorities, preferences, and expectations during the project development process. So to get there, the process involved a lot of good discussion between our planners and engineers, a lot of good information and perspective sharing, 
and actually um, built some camaraderie and some common ownership in the direction that the city provided. So that was a great exercise that sort of got the team on the same page. And I think ultimately resulted in something that benefited sort of both the engineers, the planners, project designers, communities, and developers, because everyone now had a clearer sense about what it is the city wanted. You talked about how private development has grown, for instance, in the city of Philadelphia. Do you think that people who are involved in the private sector side have an understanding of how this all fits together? And where are some areas that maybe need improvement? I would say that, again, in the absence of guidance, and, and again, I think most cities are sort of really getting on top of this now, there's definitely a lot of frustration on the development side. Uh, for them, you know, I totally get it, time is money. And so to the extent that the city can articulate its priorities, they're almost willing to do, you know, almost whatever we ask them to do if we can articulate what it is we want. So part of that is getting our own sort of city house together about um, what are those priorities? You know, is it for transit? Is it for cycling? Is it for parking? Is it for deliveries? We, I'll say, you know, the cities and the aughts and the and tens, um, we're dealing with a lot of emerging new needs on the city streets, particularly in urban areas. And uh, we just simply hadn't had the time to digest that nor provide clear guidance around what it is we wanted. So part of this was during, you know, it was part of process, but ultimately I think whatever we put out there, you know, if it could help shave one less review, two less reviews. In many cases, that was often 60, 90 plus days um, time that developers were getting sort of answers that they needed so that they can move their projects forward, which again, at the end of the day, is helping to save them time and save them money and get us a better product. In just a moment, I'll continue my conversation with Steve Buckley, and we'll talk about how his experience working for cities and with state DOTs is both similar and different right after this brief message. Do you want to reach more than 17,000 transportation professionals? Podcasts like this one are a great way to reach a dedicated audience of listeners. Sponsoring an ITE podcast is a cost-effective way to gain exposure and build brand awareness. ITE offers podcasts on key issues like safety, connected and automated vehicles, and transportation management systems and operations, ensuring your message is heard by the right people. For more information, contact Jill Andrew at the Wyman Company. Her email is J-A-N-D-R-E-U at the Wyman Company, W-Y-M-A-N.com. You've worked for both the cities of Philadelphia and Toronto. Now a lot of your work involves working with state agencies at that level. Give me a bit of a comparison of what the experiences are like working with each, how they are alike, and how they're different. I think the biggest issue in terms of, uh, I'll say, the more on the ground aspects between uh, planners and engineers, I think, uh, again, over the last two decades, the cities have been facing the pressures for change earlier and perhaps uh, more acutely than perhaps it was being felt at the state DOT level. There was a, a rise in fatalities around vulnerable road users. So we had a greater focus on safety, greater focus on mobility issues for persons with disabilities. Demands for better cycling infrastructure, impacts of ride hailing, impacts of delivery services, and also sort of a push toward better enforcement within the city. So, again, at the statewide level, these things may not have been sort of front and center, but they were being felt in the city. So I think all of these things being felt more closely in the city forced the cities to be the ones to have to respond and innovate. And sometimes it was state laws, sometimes it was regulations, uh, sometimes it was the 
design guidelines, none of those things at the state level are necessarily quick to respond. And particularly in certain states that have both urban and rural, I'm in Pennsylvania, I'll say non-urban elected officials simply don't see or feel or understand the need for change. So the the cities, I think, have been a real driver on this. Now, all that said, I think what we're seeing now is a wave of leadership entering our state DOTs who seem to understand these issues and have been largely supportive on large state DOT projects of trying to incorporate some more innovation in terms of how they do things. So we're now seeing more planners involved in the early scoping of projects, which gets those projects pointed correctly out of the gates. And then also, as I mentioned before, remaining involved throughout the design, which ensures that some of those concepts are really sort of carrying through and getting implemented as well. You mentioned how officials from rural areas may not have the same understanding as those from urban and perhaps suburban areas as well. Is this an area of education that's needed so that they become more familiar with that? Or is that something that really gets maybe too into the weeds and the transportation professionals have to focus on that and not so much elected officials? I'll I'll pick uh, two or three topics here just to sort of highlight the separation here. Things like yield to buses, um, which uh, is important to curbing buses, being able to pull out in the traffic in urban areas, important to keep buses moving safely and reliably. In rural areas, they don't see the problem. And there's been resistance about passing simple rules like that. Likewise, as we're doing things like putting bus lanes in cities, things like automated enforcement of bus lanes is something that perhaps doesn't garner a lot of interest or sympathy in rural environments. So getting legislation like that passed, which becomes critical for keeping transit moving in cities, we need the rural legislators' cooperation on those things. And those are the sort of things that are often tied up in state law that can be helpful to cities, but perhaps aren't necessarily quick to move. What do you see as some of the most significant issues facing the profession in the post-COVID-19 era from both a planning and an engineering perspective? I think we're finally getting to sort of start to see what the new normal looks like. And I think that's the biggest question on the planning side. And I'm not necessarily sure we have a lot of great answers right now. I think on the planning side, this is the year, our first glimpse into what the new work from office might look like. But I also think that sort of with a tight labor market, giving employees some latitude, the whole return to work, return to office sort of thing could change quite a bit if the economy softens. So in the short term, I think what most, and I'll speak again from an urban standpoint, what most cities are seeing is right now less transit use, particularly for long distance commuting, currently greater flexibility in work days, start times, which probably has muted the typical weekday peaking and commuting. And then I think the area we don't have our heads around yet is, you know, what are the impacts of things like home delivery services, particularly on urban congestion and safety? So these are sort of some of the the questions that are out there. I think planners are struggling with it. The world's continuing to shift a little bit, but we're starting to see some of that sort of stability. So, you know, when it gets to planners, the question is, you know, what is it we should be planning for? We're trying to look out 10, 20 years, and we're not really sure what the new normal looks like. And then sort of following that is, how do we adjust? And, you know, particularly the when, where, and how people travel, and maybe things like how do we provide transit service? Those sort of questions, I think, remain unresolved. On the engineering side, I think with the greater flexibility for some workers, it seems like congestion hasn't sort of boiled up to the point it had been perhaps pre-COVID. So congestion does not seem to be as hot of an issue. But my sense is that what we have seen is in many, particularly urban areas, 
We've seen recent increases in traffic-related fatalities in many major cities. So roadway safety continues to be sort of front and center for many of those areas. Like I said, I think we have this spike during many cities during 2020 and 2021. Those numbers are starting to come back down, but in most cases, they're not yet pre-COVID level. So on the engineering side, I think there's going to continue to be sort of a bit of a push on how do we make our streets safer. You talked about how planners, they're looking ahead 10, 20, maybe even more years in terms of what's going to be coming up. And I think about just what's happened in this century, in the past 23 years, of things that have totally turned things upside down. COVID, which we've already talked about. And then you have something like 9-11, which added all new security protocols that people weren't considering before that. How do you plan for those unplanned, unexpected types of changes? It's hard, and but that's part of our job. I think using 9-11 as an example, um, I think the question was, you know, will we ever get back to normal again? Manhattan had seen sort of some of its greatest growth post 9-11. So I think we will ultimately move back into normalcy again. But, you know, some of the things that came out of COVID, particularly advances in technology, have given us a lot more flexibility in terms of how and when and where we work. Do things like commuting patterns return to quote unquote normal? I'm not sure they do. And maybe that's a good thing. I think maybe it buys us some additional time and some flexibility to sort of think through what we want the future to look like. But I think also, you know, as a general planner, my maybe it's the engineer in me, but you sort of plan for the worst and hope for the best. Um, I think we sort of want to, at this point, keep our options open and sort of the term I like to use is when we design things, sort of future-proof it so that as we think about these things, design it so we do give ourselves some perhaps different off-ramps as we move down the planning process. So a lot of it will be some incremental response, but ultimately I think we want to be ready to sort of go back to the sort of growth trajectory that that we'd seen perhaps in the, the 2020s. Finally, I want to ask you, because again, I think you're ideally suited to answer this. What advice would you give to planners and engineers in terms of working cooperatively together so that they can better plan and engineer for those projects that they're going to be working on? I'll say for my planning colleagues, I've seen a lot out there now recently that it's a little uh, divisive, but often sort of blaming engineers for a lot of the the urban ills we have. I think it's a little misguided. I think many of the decisions around wide roads and freeways were actually decisions that were driven by planners back in the 60s and 70s. So there's some history here with maybe less than desirable choices all around and sort of placing ultimately people that are your partners on the defensive, I think doesn't help the conversation. So I do think the sort of new wave of engineers that are coming out of school, younger engineers, there is definitely sort of a focus that moves beyond simply moving cars. Again, let's engage in the conversation in a very constructive way. Also on the planning side, let's make sure that we're sort of bringing rigor and research into solutions that we're trying to bring forward. While I'm all for experimentation, I think we get focused on sort of the the new and cool, and it often comes at the expense of sort of the proven, totally for seeing continued innovation, but also let's let's make sure that the things that we're proposing are truly effective. And I'm, and I'm thinking of this primarily around the safety world. There's a lot of solutions, blanket solutions being thrown out there that I think may be good, but it's in many cases, it's about picking the appropriate time and environment for the application of those tools. One other sort of, I'll say it, it's, it's a little in the weeds, but I think it's really important is that for our planner friends is that let's be sensitive to the challenges of maintaining things. Um, and it sounds like it's very small, but 
I think in many cases, you see a lot of resistance and change in organizations because of additional burdens that are being put on them. So being dismissive of the impacts on the day-to-day maintenance teams who are often already stretched too thin is a surefire way to create resistance. So if you're asking them to do new or more, look for ways to help them do that. Uh, Whether it's new resources or more funding, help them figure out ways to sort of shoulder the additional asks that we're making of them. On the engineering side, I know there are parts of the country where there's still a lot of pressure existing to focus on moving cars, um, but I think we need to continue to move the conversation from getting around quickly or solving congestion to one that's a little bit broader. And, you know, how do we use transportation to build good communities? Now, this doesn't mean that we need to create needless congestion, but I think our goal should be, you know, looking at ways that we can achieve good throughput at safe and context-appropriate speeds. That should be sort of a good mission, I think, for um, how we approach traffic engineering. Again, for the engineers, like I said, I think the younger ones that are coming out of school are coming out with perhaps a a more open mind about what it is they're trying to achieve. So um, I think all that is good for the profession as well. One last thing, I think on the, the human soft skills side, as Jennifer Toth, my partner at the spring conference stated, I think we could all benefit from trying to lessen a little bit more, bring some humility to the table. There's a lot we can continue to learn from each other. And I think both sides bring valuable insights and valid perspectives and are sort of integral to designing better places. Sort of, I think this is a hard one with our younger professionals. The desire to get things done often sort of creates a little bit of risk or damage to critical relationships. Remember, planners and engineers, you guys are on the same team here. I think we're all basically trying to achieve the same thing. And um, while you might not always get everything you want, let's not let the 5% of what we disagree on get in the way of the 95% of the things that we do agree on. So those, I think, are important soft side skills that help continuing to build those relationships. Our guest on this episode of ITE Talks Transportation has been Steve Buckley. He's the Vice President of Planning and Advisory Services for Kimberly Horn. Steve, thanks so much for being my guest on ITE Talks Transportation. Thank you for having me. It's been great.